Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 251, A Lion Pouncing on a Large Prey. And welcome back everyone to the narrative. Last time, Manuel Komnenos shuffled off this mortal coil. It was September 1180 and he was 61 years old. His long reign had seen him struggle with Byzantium's place in the world. The empire could no longer stand apart from its neighbours. The crusading movement and the growing power of the Latin world made it vital that the Romans were seen to be serving the interests of the wider Christian world. Manuel spent decades trying to solve that particular Rubik's Cube, and the debate continues as to whether he succeeded or failed. What isn't in dispute is that Manuel was a powerful figure in his day. He was respected and feared on the world stage and at home. Two generations on from the Komnenian takeover of the state, a huge aristocratic clan now dominated every significant post in the empire. Every family that Alexius, John and Manuel had embraced now gathered expectantly to pay their respects to the dead emperor. He had been both the Vasilefs and the Paterfamilias. All appointments were approved by him. Every family squabble depended on his whim. Now that he was gone, the tectonic plates began shifting. His son would take over, but he had only just turned eleven, too young to hold together a fractious coalition of interests. As we've seen at various times in Byzantine history, an emperor who's too young to rule creates a power vacuum. The Regency Council set up to govern for him is always vulnerable to attack. Powerful men from outside the court often try to seize the reins of government for themselves. Romanos Le Capinos and Nicephorus Phocas both gained power that way. Manuel's son, Alexius, was therefore dependent on those who governed for him. He needed them to make sensible choices and protect his position until he was old enough to act alone. Unfortunately, they did not. For those who've enjoyed hearing the Komnenian story and feel an affinity for them, what follows might come as a bit of a shock. The three senior figures guiding the state after Manuel's death were his wife, his nephew, and the patriarch. His wife was Maria of Antioch, daughter of Raymond of Antioch and great-granddaughter of Bohemond. She was a Frankish Norman by background, but had been the empress for the past 19 years. Manuel's nephew was Alexius Komnenos, who, for obvious reasons, I will call the Proto-Sebastos from now on. Uh, Proto-Sebastos being his court title. You may recall that two of Manuel's brothers had died suddenly in the same year that his father John did. Manuel had always been protective of his nephews and promoted them to high positions in government. 
Protosebastos was one of the highest court ranks of the day. The patriarch was Theodosius Voratiotis, a man of some principle who immediately felt cut out of the loop by the other two. According to our sources, Maria and the Protosebastos began an affair not long after Manuel's death and began to run the state at the expense of all other voices. I should point out that accusations of affairs like this are common in court reporting, and there's no way to prove if the rumours were true. Maria had taken holy orders on Manuel's death, and it's possible that she and the Protosebastos simply made a political alliance. But Maria had spent two decades married to a much older man. Now in her mid-thirties, she may well have been keen for a more authentic love affair. The Protosebastos was in his mid-forties and was a widower. Since our two contemporary historians say that they were having an affair, we'll go with that. Given that she was a nun and the Protosebastos was her husband's nephew, you can imagine how this union was received. With Maria's approval, then, the Protosebastos became the emperor in all but name. All decisions had to go through him, much to the resentment of the other leading men of the family. Nikitas Coniates, our main source for this period, did not like the Protosebastos, accusing him of being lazy and soft. Coniates paints a picture of a state lacking a firm hand, something which was particularly disastrous, given the number of Comnenian princelings who each controlled a piece of the state. In the absence of Manuel, to scare them all into line, he accuses each of looking after their own interests, some hoarding cash, some building up personal power bases, and others agitating for revolution. The most vocal about regime change was Manuel's daughter, also named Maria. She was the only child produced by Manuel's first marriage to Bertha of Sulzbach. You may recall that Manuel almost married his daughter off to Bella of Hungary and then William of Sicily before finally settling on Renier of Montferrat shortly before his death. Renier, an Italian, now carried the title of Caesar. This Maria, Maria Comnini, felt that she too should have been included in the Regency Council, and now openly talked conspiracy against her namesake and the Protosebastos, who were hoarding power up in the palace. A plot was hatched to assassinate the Protosebastos while he was taking part in a religious procession during Lent 1181. The plot was discovered and those involved were arrested. Knowing that interrogation would soon reveal her name, Maria, the born-in-the-purple princess, and her husband Renier ran for the Hagia Sophia. The patriarch was happy to offer them sanctuary, and when the people heard what was happening, many flocked to defend Maria. She had been born in Constantinople and had grown up in front of the people's gaze. Many favoured her over their foreign empress. The Empress and the Protosebastos were at a loss as to what to do. They could hardly attack the Hagia Sophia just before Easter, nor could they harm Manuel's beloved daughter. 
their hesitation allowed Maria and Renia to send for their things, including enough money to hire a bodyguard to garrison the cathedral. After a few weeks' standoff, the imperial power couple finally brought in enough troops to settle the matter. These soldiers fought a brief battle with the bodyguards who faced them across the Augusteon, driving them back into the Hagia Sophia, but then they paused. Their captain was loath to spill blood in the church itself, and there seemed no alternative if they wanted to eject the squatters. The two sides stared at each other for a few hours until night fell. Then the patriarch hastily organized peace talks, and with promises of safe conduct, Maria and Renia left the church and returned to their home. No reprisals came, despite the fact that their co-conspirators were still locked up and had confirmed who was behind the assassination attempt. This unseemly incident proved to anyone paying attention that the Regency was weak and vulnerable. Predators around the eastern Mediterranean caught the scent in the air and began prowling. A particularly big beast sat at the Black Sea port of Oineon and read dispatches from Constantinople with interest. Andronicus Komnenos, Manuel's cousin, sensed an opportunity to finally step into the limelight. Uh, you remember Andronicus, the man who conspired with the King of Hungary, attempted to kill Manuel, had an affair with his niece, dug his way out of a prison cell, faked illness at the side of the road to escape his captors, seduced a princess of Antioch, left her, then married Manuel's niece, ran away with her to various Muslim courts, then came back to beg Manuel for forgiveness, and was sent to live at Oineon. Yes, that Andronicus. Various family members wrote to him to suggest that he had the stature to fill Manuel's shoes. You'd think she would have known better, but amongst those urging him to take action was Maria, Manuel's daughter. Andronicus had botched every task Manuel had ever given him, he'd repeatedly brought the family and the empire into disrepute, and his career had made it clear that he cared only about himself. So why then, was he seen as a unifying figure at this time of crisis. I can think of three things in his favour. One, Andronicus was a celebrity. Stories of his daring escapades had spread far and wide. Everyone knew who he was, and everyone could imagine him wearing the purple. Two, Andronicus was the grandson of Alexius Komnenos. The Alexius Komnenos. There was no doubting the credentials of his lineage. And three, Andronicus was old. He had grown up with Manuel. He was from that older generation who, until five minutes ago, had been in power. My suspicion is that many hoped that Andronicus would be able to keep the younger generation from falling out with one another until Manuel's son could come of age. Age usually has a mellowing effect, so people may have assumed that Andronicus had got all that crazy lust and power-hunger out of his system. If only. Andronicus gathered some troops and made a slow march towards the Bosphorus in early 1182. As Coniates points out, had the imperial regime focused their attention on Andronicus, they could easily have crushed him. 
but events were moving against them. News of Manuel's death had by now filtered out into the wider world, and Byzantine troops were being engaged on every front. Bella of Hungary retook Sirmium and the Dalmatian coast, lands that had been promised to him as a boy. Stefan Nemanja, the prince of Serbia, threw off Byzantine suzerainty and began attacking his neighbours. Kilijarsland II, over at Iconium, wasted no time in capturing the exposed Roman forts that sat on the plateau. Corteum, Sozopolis, and a host of others near Italia quickly surrendered to the sultan's men. As Andronicus reached the vicinity of Nicaea then, he was only confronted by a token force who he quickly defeated. Leading the imperial side was a man named Andronicus Angelos. Fearful that he would be punished for his failure, Angelos offered his services to Andronicus. This is noteworthy as his sons, who came with him on this campaign, will end up being important as the story unfolds. Andronicus reached Chalcedon around the beginning of April. He proclaimed that he was here to protect Manoel's son, young Alexius, from his terrible guardians. Andronicus had, after all, sworn in front of the whole court to protect the succession, and many believed him. He didn't have a large army at his back, nor could he cross the Bosphorus as he had no ships. He had to hope that inside the city the political winds would blow his way, which they duly did. Since the standoff between the two Marias, the proto-Sebastos had managed to make himself ever more unpopular. He tried to depose the patriarch Theodosius for offering sanctuary to Maria and Renier, but the synod that met to decide on a punishment acquitted the patriarch, who was led back to the Hagia Sophia by cheering crowds. Whipped up by news of Andronicus's arrival, the people began chanting against the Proto-Sebastos and smashing up the streets. The commander of the fleet, Andronicus Contostephanos, defected to Andronicus, which essentially settled the matter. The Varangian guards seized the Proto-Sebastos and handed him over to Andronicus, who had him blinded. Up to this point, Andronicus really did seem like the city's saviour. He would provide the strong government needed to deal with the empire's problems. And the aristocracy were once again more or less united behind one ruler. That feeling would last for about an hour. The riots that had begun in favour of Andronicus now began to extend to attacks on the Italian merchants, who, as you know, lived in special quarters along the Golden Horn. Resentment of the rich merchants had long been a feature of life in Constantinople, and some opportunistic looters began to rob them. Andronicus ordered his troops to cross the Bosphorus and enter the city. You would think to stop the looting and restore order, but no. The soldiers joined the mob and thoroughly sacked the Italian quarters. Remember that Manuel had arrested all the Venetians in the empire, back in 1171. So this was largely Pisan and Genoese merchants who were terrified to find themselves under attack. Some made it to their boats and escaped, but many didn't. The stories of the assault come largely from Latin sources, so there may be an element of exaggeration, but much of it seems to be true. A hospital run by the Knights of St. John was ransacked, with sick patients being murdered in their beds, 
A priest visiting from Rome on papal business was decapitated, while those who were taken alive were sold into slavery. To the Turks, no less. Rumours also persisted that Byzantine priests had looked the other way, or even directed their congregations towards lucrative targets. It was a dark, dark episode. Why would Andronicus do this? A show of strength to frighten his enemies, perhaps? He may have wanted to reward the troops who'd backed him by giving them something to plunder. But more politically, it seems like he wanted to both curry favour with the people of Constantinople and eliminate a group whose natural sympathies were with his enemies, as in the Empress Maria and the Caesar Renia, who were both Latins. Manuel had also employed many Latins in his administration, a source of resentment to many Byzantine bureaucrats and nobles. This attack was a clear signal that Andronicus would favour native men, and that they could expect rewards from him if they were loyal. This unprovoked assault was pure Andronicus, a short-term hit that does nothing but lasting damage. Reports of Byzantine cruelty and treachery found a receptive audience in Outremere and Western Europe. Coming on the heels of Manuel's mass arrest of the Venetians, it painted Constantinople as a viper's nest that might be better run by a Latin king one day. Soon afterwards, Andronicus had to begin negotiations with the Venetians in order to get some Italian merchants to come back. The Latins were now a fixture in both the commercial life of the empire and the military operations of the fleet. The Venetians understandably demanded that they be paid compensation for what they'd lost back in 1171. So Andronicus was now paying through the nose to settle a situation which could have been avoided if he hadn't shed blood for his own benefit. Quickly, the Comnenian elites realised that they'd made a mistake. Once in the city, Andronicus began blinding and exiling political opponents, hardly the unifying force they'd hoped for. Several cities in Anatolia held out against him and became rallying points for disaffected nobles. Andronicus also made a point of visiting Manuel's tomb at the Pantocrato Monastery. Onlookers were surprised to see Andronicus weeping and praying in front of his dead cousin. Coniates claims, with hindsight, that Andronicus was taunting the dead Manuel, venting his frustration at his cousin for his years of exile, and concluding with the line that I shall fall upon your family like a lion pouncing on a large prey. Given what happened next, it's not such a far-fetched sentiment. After this public display of grief, Andronicus did agree to have young Alexius II crowned as emperor, overseeing the ceremonies personally with tears of joy. But we know it was all an act because as soon as the city had gone quiet, he began a grotesque power grab, more ruthless and shameless than anything the city had seen since the days of Justinian II or Phocas. First, Manuel's daughter and her husband were found dead in their bedrooms. Had one of them died suspiciously, it might have seemed like an unexpected illness, but for both to die 
so soon after one another, spoke of poison. Andronicus's eunuchs were widely suspected to have administered the lethal dose. Next, he moved against the empress, who was still technically regent. He accused her repeatedly of conspiring against him. He even gathered a loyal mob in the streets, who hurled abuse at the empress and intimidated the patriarch. Andronicus and his agents railroaded the judicial process and forced Theodosius to acquiesce to her exile. She was forced into a local nunnery, cutting the young emperor off from his most vocal advocate. Soon afterwards, sensing that his own career and possibly life were in danger, Theodosius, the patriarch, announced his retirement. Realising their mistake, the leading men of the city formed a conspiracy against Andronicus. But it was discovered in early 1183. Those rounded up and blinded included Andronicus Contostephanos, the admiral of the fleet and Manuel's most capable general, Basil Ducas, the patron of our historian Nikitas Coniates, as well as members of the Angelos family, as in the family who'd been the first to defect to Andronicus's side. Most of the men of the family got away and made it to Nicaea, where resistance to Andronicus was strongest. This conspiracy fed Andronicus's paranoia, and he stepped up his efforts to rid himself of his enemies. King Bela of Hungary was on the march again that spring. Crossing from Sirmium into Byzantine territory, he attacked and captured Belgrade and Branicevo. In a sign of things to come, one of the commanders meant to defend Byzantine territory abandoned his post in order to rebel against Andronicus. This was Andronicus Lapardus, the husband of Manuel's sister. Roman defences crumbled after he left, and Bella was able to sack Nish and Serdica, both prosperous Byzantine towns. Though Lapardus was captured and blinded, Blame was still to be apportioned for the Hungarian breakthrough. It fell on the Empress Maria, whose half-sister was Bella's wife. Supposedly, the Empress had been in correspondence with the Hungarian king and encouraged him to destabilise Andronicus's regime. Whatever the truth, it was the pretext Andronicus needed to force young Alexius II to sign his own mother's death warrant. Those around Andronicus knew he was going too far. Apparently, his own son and son-in-law refused to carry out the order. But by this point, Andronicus had many murderers on his payroll, and one of them strangled Maria. Several Anatolian cities, Nicaea, Prusa, and Lopadium, were now openly resisting Andronicus's rule. That meant war, and Andronicus used this as the pretext to demand that he be raised to the ultimate office. We can only imagine the horrible position that young Alexius II was in as he acquiesced to the elevation of the monster who'd murdered most of his family. But there was nothing he could do. Another crowd spontaneously gathered to violently agitate for Andronicus's elevation and so a hastily arranged ceremony took place at the Vlachianai Palace in September 1183. 
with no shame at all, Andronicus ordered that his co-emperor be murdered a few days later. Supposedly, young Alexius, Manuel's son, was throttled with a bowstring and his body loaded with weights and thrown into the Bosphorus. He was 14 years old and had been emperor in name only for two years. Quite how this horrific act was explained to the public, we don't know. Given they had supported Andronicus as the champion of Alexius's rights, we can only assume that this was the moment when they began to realise that their new emperor was a bloodthirsty tyrant. Coniates doesn't tell us what official announcement was given, presumably that the emperor had died of a tragic illness. But given there was no body and no state funeral, everyone must have been suspicious. The absence of closure meant that rumours persisted for years that Alexius had escaped. When Andronicus was told that someone had turned up in Sicily, claiming to be Manuel's son, he supposedly responded, Well, he must be a very good swimmer. To put the cherry on top of this grotesque period in Byzantine history, Andronicus announced that he would marry Alexius's betrothed, the 11-year-old Agnes of France, the daughter of King Louis, who we met during the Second Crusade. The poor girl must have been traumatised when she was informed that she was now to marry the 65-year-old murderer, I mean emperor. Some of you might be thinking that I'm getting too emotional about all this myself. After all, every Byzantine emperor kills people. Whether they're on the battlefield or caught up in a conspiracy, there's always bloodshed and betrayal. But I think this is different for several reasons. It's women and children being targeted for a start. And as centuries of Byzantine history has shown, exile was generally effective in neutralizing political opponents. Once they no longer had access to the court, most rivals became irrelevant. Second, Andronicus had destroyed legitimacy. That's what Manuel's son represented, one person who everyone agreed had the right to rule over them. Now that he was gone, Pandora's box was open. Every person with a blood connection to the Komnenoi could argue that they had a claim on the throne. Andronicus had wrecked the system which Alexius Komnenos had used to prevent the empire from collapsing into anarchy. And third, this was Andronicus's family he was slaughtering. He was murdering his own kin. It was deeply destructive, selfish, and cruel. Several members of Andronicus's immediate family knew that he'd gone off the deep end. His eldest son, named Manuel, refused to go along with his plans, but Andronicus wouldn't listen to him. He was determined to eliminate all opposition to his rule. Next time, what goes around comes around. Andronicus will be torn apart by the very mob that he'd stirred into a frenzy. It wasn't just the brutal regime he led which tipped them over the edge, it was the damage his rule was doing to the empire itself. Before I go, I should just remind you about our sources. 
the only comprehensive history we have for this period is that of Nikitas Coniates, the man who wrote after the sack of Constantinople in 1204. We might be inclined to wonder if he exaggerated the negative aspects of Andronicus's reign, but his narrative of these early years is confirmed by the Bishop of Thessalonica, who we will be hearing much more from next time. Coniates was about 24 years old when Manuel died. He'd just begun his career working as a tax official and then became an imperial undersecretary, just as Andronicus's reign of terror began. He wisely resigned when his patron was caught up in the conspiracy of 1183, but he'll soon be back. <laughs> 